but it's my pleasure to introduce myself. My name is Bumi Okalami, and I am speaking to you from South Bend, Indiana, where I am the president of our Daughters of the King, Mary and Martha chapter at the Cathedral of St. James. The Mary and Martha chapter of the Cathedral happens to be the host of the Fall Assembly this year, which is our first virtual Fall Assembly, but it sounds like everything is going on well so far. Canon Stephanie Spellers. Canon Spellers was born in Frankfort, Kentucky, and she serves as the presiding bishop's canon for evangelism, reconciliation, and creation, helping Episcopalians to follow Jesus' way of love and to grow loving, life-giving, and liberating relationships with God, each other, and the earth. She's the author of Radical Welcome, Embracing God, the Other, and the Spirit of Transformation, as well as The Episcopal Way and Companions on the Episcopal Way with Eric Law. She has directed mission and evangelism work at General Theological Seminary as a canon in the Diocese of Long Island, founded The Crossing, a groundbreaking church with St. Paul's Cathedral in Boston, and she's led numerous church-wide renewal efforts um, a graduate of the Episcopal Divinity School and Harvard's Divinity School, she makes a home in New York's Harlem neighborhood. We're, we're happy to have Canon Stephanie Spellers. She's going to be focusing today on becoming beloved, becoming a beloved community now, telling truth, seeking justice, fostering healing. So that's going to be the angle that she's going to take in this conversation today. Of course, none of our speakers are limited to the focus that they have given us, but just to give us an idea of the things that we're going to be hearing. I'm also happy to welcome Bishop Gail Harris. Bishop Gail Harris was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and she serves as the Bishop Suffragan in the Diocese of Massachusetts. She was ordained to the priesthood in 1982 Consecrated as Bishop in January of 2003, she currently chairs the House of Bishops Pastoral Development Committee, and she's a convener of the Episcopal Bishops of African Descent. We welcome Bishop Gail Harris, whose focus is going to be on racial identity and legacy in his service. And last but not the least is the Bishop of our Diocese, who is Bishop Douglas Sparks, a native of Missouri, born and raised in the uh, St. Louis, Missouri and Ferguson, Missouri area of the state. He was ordained into the Roman Catholic Church as a deacon in 1983, um, into the priesthood in the Catholic Church in 1984. He was received as a priest into the Episcopal Church in 1989, and he was elected as the eighth bishop of the Diocese of Northern Indiana in 2016. We know him all around our state as our bishop. And in, interestingly, in 2002, he was the Dean of Wellington Cathedral of St. Paul, which is in New Zealand. So he spent some time in ministry in New Zealand. I took a little thing out of uh, Bishop Spock's personal ministry statement that I wanted to share with you, which I thought was interesting. His personal ministry statement states that he strives to be a servant, a storyteller, presider, preacher, pastor, teacher, singer, risk taker, and reconciler for the sake of proclaiming Jesus, the risen Christ, and engaging God's mission. And we welcome Doug, uh, Reverend Douglas Sparks to this panel. We're going to have a few minutes for each of our panelists to give us some opening remarks um, about this topic of systemic racism and confronting it and how we as Christian men and women should approach this, asking ourselves, Lord, what would you have us do? We'll have a few minutes of the panelists giving us their opening remarks before we get beamed into our breakout rooms in which one of each of our panelists will be handling a breakout room. Let me ask that you kindly select somebody in your breakout room who will share with us when we come back together what happened in your breakout room so that we can all participate in um, adequate knowledge and, and have a little bit of an understanding of what was discussed in a room that we were not in. So this is the fun part of this program. And without further ado, I will ask 
uh, Canon Stellas to please start us off. Actually, we did some, um, some kind of sharing between myself and the two bishops, and I think we flipped the coin. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. And, and I believe, Bishop Gale, are you gonna get us started? Please do. All right, I'll leave, it in, the, I'll leave it in your hands from here. She's also the bishop who ordained me, so there's no way I'm going before her. <laughs> <laughs> only after, only ever after. <laughs> That was quite an ordination. I called you out, didn't I? <laughs> Got me good. Got you good, right? Uh, it is an honor to be here with you today. Um, I uh, one of the things that um, was not said is that uh, um, I was the diocesan chaplain for the diocese of Washington for the Daughters of the King, and and the two churches I served in, we had um, chapter. Um, and, and, and they were very important to me as well as when I went to Rochester, New York. So uh, the uh, you sisters are very close to me uh, in the order um, that we may serve in his sake, for his sake, in his sake, in his name. From Ephesians chapter four, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors for we are members of one another. In the early months of 1857, a white master by the name of Huckabee went down at night to the slave cabins, which was his custom, on his plantation and repeatedly raped his female slaves. One of those slaves was Frances. And later that year, a child was born from that violence. And she named her daughter Emma, who was born in 1857 and who alongside her mother was on the property of her biological father. Somebody needs to mute, thank you. When Emma was about eight years old, the slaves were told that they were freed, but nothing really changed much. Sharecropping came next and in sharecropping, it seemed to be just an extension of slavery cruel and unjust, harsh and hostile. It was a system to keep blacks tied to the land in a perpetual subsistence living, unable to escape because of obligations put upon them. They were tied to the land in a status that was even less than landed serfs in the feudal ages of Europe. And of course, they were easy to identify. There was nowhere to run. They were easy to be seen by their black skin and they had no true civil rights. But after World War I, freedom came of a sort to Emma. She and her family moved to bustling Detroit, Michigan. In the fall of 1857, Emma died a few weeks from her 100th birthday. And one of Emma's great granddaughters, who was almost seven, stood next to her casket. And the little girl looked down upon Granny's face, or that's what she called her, Granny. She had fair skin like any white person would. Her hair was snow white, but it was straight like white people's hair. And she remembered Granny always seemed to have a corn cob pipe with her, chewing on it or smoking on it. The little girl remembered Granny's soft yet strong voice, endlessly telling stories about old Massa and the living horror of being a slave. Looking down on her Granny in a coffin, a woman born a slave during the racial tyranny of white supremacy of the original sin of, the, of this country. The little girl standing by that casket that day was me. Emma Huckabee was my great-grandmother. Slavery is not just a part of the past. Its legacy continues unabated today. It's not just an unfortunate chapter in our history. To quote one of my college professors, Michael Harper, when it comes to race, the history of race is my own heartbeat. It is a part of me. It is indelible. It's a part of my identity and it is a part of yours. No matter what the color of your skin, 
racism, in particular slavery, is a part of who you are. For we live with the perpetual legacy and presence of racism in this country. The idea of identity in humans is multifaceted. It comes like a piece of tapestry with various colored threads weaving through it. It is woven together to create a whole. That is what our identity is. Different strands coming together. But another part of our identity, the basic thread to our being is that we are also woven to be the body of Christ, woven together now, today, this moment as we face two pandemics, the pandemic of COVID and the pandemic of racism, as our presiding bishop says. Our identity in this moment, in this time, tells us we are to be responsive. Our identity has been forged by Jesus in his opening ministry with the words of the prophet Isaiah. We are to bind up the we are to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the years of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a garland of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they, not us, may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God may be glorified. That is our work. That is our call. That is our identity, which was forged on the cross and is articulated in our baptismal vows to seek and serve Christ and to respect the dignity of every human being. Identity demands us to combat racism if we are truly Christian. Our Christian identity says we are to fight it whether it's subtle or overt. Our heritage calls us to be agents of liberation, justice, and purveyors of love, to heal the brokenness that is in with, within each of us and within this world. What we face today, the roots of today's white supremacy is found not only in slavery, but in the failure of the reconstruction period following the Civil War. As Henry Louis Gates has said in his um, wonderful series, Reconstruction, after this America after the Civil War, and if there's anything I can ask you to look at, go to PBS, find that, it's a two-parter, Reconstruction, the America after the Civil War by Henry Louis Gates, to understand what we're facing today. We are in the midst of a still triggered, fearsome backlash of racism, the onslaught of fear and oppression. White America, he says, did not then nor now can accept the idea that slaves and former slaves and their descendants are their equal. That is the power of racism. It makes things broken, it divides, it makes us hate to walk in fear and ignorance. And it's manifested most powerfully in denial when people deny that they are participating in, perpetuating, or that they even fear to talk about racism. It denies that I am equally the image of God as you are. It denies that God is present in me and other people of color. Our identity in Christ calls us to heal this hurting word, world to begin this work by reaching across the lines that divide us, welcoming the stranger and allowing ourselves to be welcomed by those whom we do not know. We are to be challenged to discover God and be enriched by God's sacred gift of diversity. When we do reach across those boundaries, when we engage in honest and loving encounters with those who differ with us and those who are most different from us, we are truly embracing our Christian heritage and our identity. I'm sorry. Again, as it says in Ephesians, let us speak the truth to our neighbors for we are members of one another. So we are to act, to speak truth, to live by our baptismal vows in his service. Therefore I, 
a Christian must stand up for my brothers and sisters in the world who may be Muslim or Jewish or of another faith. I must stand up for them when they're oppressed. I am native born in this country. That means I need to stand up for refugees, asylum seekers, and those who immigrate here. I am female, and it means sometimes, yes, I have to stand up for men who may be discriminated against. I am straight. I must stand up for the LBGTQ community, that they too are children of God who are to be treated with dignity. And I am proud that I am Black. Don't ever tell me that you don't see this Black skin because you do. I am proud that my people have persevered and been resilient. But it means I must stand up also for Hispanic, Asian, and other peoples around this globe. Also, I am left-handed, but I'm not sure about standing up for right-handed people. I'm not sure about that. Y'all own the world. <laughs> we need a deeper and more inclusive conversation about racism and other forms of oppression. We need to move beyond conversation to visibly be active to help create the beloved community of Christ. I'm gonna tell you a quick story in closing. I was recovering from um, a cancer surgery and I was staying with a clergy couple on Cape Cod in an all white affluent area. And after a few days, I decided I might, with my cane, go for a walk uh, down the driveway and to the next door's house and come back just by myself to see if I could do it, trying to build up my strength. And as I walked down with my dog and on my cane, a car, a white car, slowed up and stopped and came across the street, driving on the wrong side, to approach me. And the driver let down his window, and it was a white man, and he was angry. He started almost spitting at me, saying, what are you doing here? Why are you walking down our street? Why are you here? Do you work for somebody? I was raised on the south side of Chicago, and um, let me tell you, I thought about my cane being a weapon because I thought this man might come at me. He was so angry that I was walking down the street. This is only a couple of years ago when Obama was just ending his presidency and our governor was a black man, Deval Patrick. Yet he saw this black person walking down his street. He demanded to know who I was and I just looked at him. He began to get out of the car and his passenger said something to him and he turned around and he glared at me. You must work for somebody. Why else would you be on the street? And he glared at me as to say, I'm watching you. He drove down one more house across and pulled in the driveway where he lived. I walked back in the house and I shared the story with my host and they then told their friends across the street who lived next door to this man, Sheila and Preston. And they were so upset that this happened. They knew me, we'd gone out to dinner a few times with the couple I was staying with. And Sheila said to Preston, not in my presence, but later, what are we gonna do? We can't let this sit. We can't let him do that to our friend and we can't be silent or we are a part of the problem. So the next day after she and Preston discussed it and came up with a strategy, Preston went next door to his neighbor's house and knocked on the door. And he said, I see that you have met my good friend, Gail Harris. Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she just great? You know, she knows Deval Patrick. Do you know that our Senator Kerry called her into a conference about peace in the Middle East and that she goes over there all day? And you know what? She has been to Buckingham Palace. She's met Queen Elizabeth twice and he goes on and on and on. Now, all of it's true. But when I met Queen Elizabeth, there are, you know, several hundred other people there too, you know. But he went on and said, isn't she a fine, great person to challenge this man's perception? And his response was, well, I'm not sure if she liked me. <laughs> but it was an action that Preston took. An action and not sitting in silence. I think we all need to be a little bit like Sheila and Preston when we see something happening to other people. What does the Lord want you and me to do in the face of racism, of white supremacy, and entitlement? 
I think God wants us to be like Sheila and Preston with our heart, mind, and spirit. May we uphold and bear the cross like Sheila and Preston. Thank you. Mm. And now I call on my sister, Stephanie. Mm. Thank you so much, Bishop Gail. And um, thank you for being vulnerable and for creating a space where all of us are able to, to be honest about our hopes, our longings, but also the pain that we bring into this work, into um, every community, just into our very lives. I really appreciate you. Um, and I appreciate all of you, daughters of the King. Um, I will do my disclosure that I'm not a daughter, but, um, but you all have been so important to me in my, um, in my journey in the Episcopal Church. And I've been blessed to, um, I think it was maybe four years ago, or yeah, I guess it was about four, um, at your, um, no, three actually, at your, um, your 2018 assembly in Austin, Texas. Um, I had the chance to, to keynote and we had a revival up in there. <laughs> um, and I feel in many ways like the daughters, your prayer, your spirit, um, your commitment to reconciliation and union with Christ um, has really carried me along. So it's wonderful to be with you. It's great to be with, um, with leaders and folks in the Diocese of Northern Indiana, I also had a chance to be with y'all. I think that was just last year, wasn't it, Bishop Doug? Um, and and so, again, I just you're you're on my heart, and um, and I'm grateful to be with you, especially in this moment, to be with you, to ask that question of what, 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 what is God asking of us um, in this time? What is God asking us to be, to do as daughters of the King, um, as siblings in Christ in this moment? So um, I'm grateful that Bishop Gale kind of offered up the more kind of personal reflection. A lot of my reflection recently has actually been about us as church and, um, and what the Spirit is calling from us as Episcopalians. Uh, I, I'm gonna assume, I hope I'm right, that pretty much everybody on here is Episcopalian. If you are, just go ahead and raise your hand just so I know like we're in the house. So, all right. So if anybody isn't, feel free to do the transfer you need to. But um, um, I've spent really, my goodness, probably since June, um, kind of locked away like lots of folks. But I've spent this time really doing a lot of reading and deep reflection, um, especially since the murder of George Floyd. A lot of reading and reflection about, um, in particular, what would it take for our church, the Episcopal Church, to, um, to be a part of healing, to be a part of wholeness, to be a part of what we call, and here's my background, you can kind of see it here, becoming beloved community now. Um, and I especially have to ask that question, and I think we all do, in light of um, really just the facts of history and the fact that the Episcopal Church has for so much of its life been what I say, I call us chaplain to the empire. We've been the church that actually was so um, fully, fully complicit in various stages of oppression and discrimination and racism throughout the life of America before there was an America. And, um, and so I think there's a very special way that we need to address the question of can a church so rooted, so steeped in white supremacy become beloved community? Can we do what God calls of us, what God is calling us to be as the children of God and respect the rest of the children of God 
Is it possible? Um, for me, it's an open question. I, I want to believe it. And a lot of my work and my life, you know, I go to bed in the, um, at night and wake up in the morning praying that we can become that kind of beloved community that Jesus dreamt and, and embodied in our midst with all the folk that he gathered around. But, um, but yeah, there is the question. And so I want to put that question to you this morning um, of not only what is God calling us to be um, for the sake of God, for the sake of the love of God, but can we? And will we as a church? If we're going to make those steps, then um, what many of us have said as we've sat with strategy and, and, um, and just doing deep, deep listening over these last few months especially, is we understand that there is a, a wider commitment that the Episcopal Church has to becoming beloved community. And we don't let that go. That commitment includes telling the truth about our churches and race. It includes proclaiming the dream of beloved community. It includes practicing the way of Jesus, the way of love as healers and reconcilers. And of course, it includes doing the work of justice that is repairing the breach. So we've been talking about that now and working on that for a few years. What we've said is that there's something even more urgent now and that there is a way that we need to focus, perhaps on especially three movements on the way toward becoming beloved community right now. And um, so I just wanna kind of walk you through these and share a little about what each one could mean. Um, and this may even spark some of your reflection as we go into the groups. Uh, this is of course my, it's actually the background for my, um, my screen here. So, um, so I don't even have to move. It's like, you've got my face, you've got the, the diagram. So I hope you can see it, feel free. If, if you don't already have your Zoom set to speaker view, if you click that, then it'll be nice and big. Um, so, so the first part of what I believe we are called toward um, and what many others have said is that we've got to tell the truth. Um, that we as an Episcopal church have to begin to do the work of truth telling and to do it systematically, to tell the stories of how our churches have been complicit in, um, in racial oppression, discrimination, injustice, colonialism, empire, extermination of native peoples, you name it, our fingerprints are on it. Um, I am, um, as I said, I've done a lot of research, especially over the summer and I'm actually completing right now, right this very moment, I'm completing a book that's called The Church Cracked Open, um, Disruption, Decline, and the Hope for Beloved Community. And what I'm doing is really looking deeply at these stories to say, what is there that's kind of in this DNA of the Episcopal Church? And here's some of the things that I found. Did you know that, um, that in 1606, when John Smith came to the United States, well, to Virginia at the time, and um, actually began the Virginia colony. Many of us have pointed to his example. He was an Anglican, a good Church of England representative. In many ways, he was like a missionary um, because he came with the clear intention not only to, um, not only to serve the crown and start this colony, but especially to do so for the church. So John Smith is someone that many Episcopalians point to. We point to Jamestown as that founding, um, that founding settlement. There are stories folks tell about how John Smith taught these settlers from England, from Ireland, from Scotland, taught them how to make their way on the land. If you read John Smith's Wikipedia page, which I actually just checked again last night, um, you know, you would, you would think that he was someone who, um, that he had such great knowledge about how to, how to make a life in this land, how to make a life in this wilderness, in this virgin territory, hence the name Virginia. Uh, most of that is a lie. Most of that is a lie. In fact, John Smith didn't know much more than any other settler <laughs> about how to make a way on this land. 
Instead, it was actually the Powhatan Confederacy, the indigenous peoples who had been here for centuries, millennia, who had figured out how to create a life on this land. They were the ones who taught the, um, the, colon the colonizers. They were the ones who taught the settlers. They were the ones who actually provided them with food, with shelter, made sure they didn't die in their first and second and third years here um, on this new land, new to Europeans. And, and in response, what did John Smith, the great Church of England leader do? John Smith presented the head of the Powhatan Confederacy with an ultimatum. John Smith, the great Anglican, said, we need you to essentially be slaves for us. We will need you to work the land. We will need you to provide for us and, um, and to provide for us at the exclusion or to provide for us before you even provide for your own communities. Um, this is what we require of you. If you will not, we will kill your women. We will kill your children. We will destroy the land. This is your choice. The head of the Powhatan Confederacy, and I wish I had the quote in front of me right now, was shocked. He couldn't believe that these Englishmen would return the hospitality with such brutality. And he said to him, and it's actually on record, he said to John Smith, the great Anglican, why would you take in violence what we would offer in love? In response, John Smith said, so you will not be slaves to us. The head of the Powhatan Confederacy said, I don't know why we would when we're already willing to work with you. Smith wanted slaves, and when he could not have them, they followed out the pledge and slaughtered the members of these, I believe it was 13 different um, villages that made up that Confederacy. That's how we started here. That community, John Smith's community, that Anglican community, the ones who, the, the first building they, they created on this new land, new to them, was a church. That's how faithful they were. That group of people were capable of such extraordinary brutality and savagery. That's in our DNA. So take a deep breath, friends. And know that for the stories I could tell like this about Virginia, there are stories about Rhode Island. There are stories about Massachusetts. There are many stories about New York, where I live, where at one point, um, the port near Wall Street was actually the largest slave trading port in the world. New York City, not South Carolina, <laughs> not any of the other places you would think of, New York. And as you travel across the country, the stories just continue. And that's why one of the first things we have to do as a church is begin telling the truth. I know that many have done this in your diocese, and I hope, I pray that you will continue and that you will do so systematically. There's something about holding the stories all together that allows us to keep moving when the guilt, the shame, the sadness might otherwise make us shut down. So please, my friends, find out the truth about our church, about your churches, about your own families in Northern Indiana. Tell the truth so that we can then tell a new story in Christ. Another part of this work of becoming beloved community now is the work of justice. We have to be a part of healing what has been so horribly broken um, and actually changing systems. And that's the work of justice. Now, the way that I understand this work of justice, and especially when I think about where we can engage as individuals and then congregations, is to say that the work is really around um, leveraging privilege for the sake of liberation. I'm going to say that again. We are to take up the work of leveraging our privilege for the sake of liberation. And here's what I mean by that. 
um, a lot of the time when you talk about justice and especially when you talk about white privilege and for most of the people on this call that is a reality of their lives um, people say well i don't feel privileged i don't know what you're talking about you know my life is hard i've had to work hard for everything i have i'm not privileged and i don't know what you mean by white privilege here's what we mean we mean that if you have white privilege it's not that you're special um, or have received special privileges. It's actually that you've been shielded from the oppression and the discrimination that people of color experience. So if you feel like nobody's given me anything, that may actually be the case. The question is not what you've been given as a white person. It's what you've been allowed to escape as a white person. If you understand what I'm saying about this, just give me some snaps so that I know that you're with me. Okay. Um, so, so as a white person or someone who holds white privilege, what you actually have is freedom. You have the freedom to not have to spend your days and nights wrestling with the kinds of things that Bishop Gale shared in her testimony just a moment ago. Um, you have the, um, the privilege of not wondering why someone wouldn't, um, wouldn't, why a taxi driver wouldn't stop or why you didn't get a job or why you didn't get into a college um, or why your schools aren't educating your children the way that they educate other children. Um, there are any number of ways that whiteness actually kind of creates a cocoon that protects you from the savagery, the savagery that America inflicts on its people of color. So if you want to be about the work of justice, and I pray that you do, then what you actually can do is leverage your privilege, use your privilege, so that you can be a part of helping everyone to get free um, and to dismantle the empire. You can use your privilege in a lot of ways, and I'm actually going to post uh, in the chat box an article that I published recently. It's actually a section from my new book, Church Cracked Open, where I talk about the stewardship of privilege and how it is that you can concretely um, identify ways that white privilege has given you ease and release it. So for instance, if you have the privilege of not talking about race, then a way to leverage your privilege is to go into white spaces and talk about race. Be that friend, be that person. <laughs> um, I imagine some of you already are. <laughs> um, if white privilege allows you to have access to certain spaces that people of color cannot access, then maybe you leverage your privilege and bring people of color along with you into those spaces. Open those doors into mostly white spaces. Um, be the one who shares that power. If as a white person you have access to certain levels of, um, of decision-making, then you could be the person at the table who says, I don't think we have everyone here necessary to make this decision adequately. Um, you can use your privilege in order to point out that the decision-making is not complete unless more voices are at the table. These are just some of the ways that you can leverage your privilege for the sake of liberation. And I hope that you'll look at those ways. Um, it's not just about goals for diversity. It's not just about um, kind of making the church more interesting. It really is about putting back together what's been broken in our systems so that those systems themselves function differently. So that's what we mean when we talk about justice. It's repairing what's broken. And if there's anything we see right now in our society, it is deep, deep brokenness. The brokenness that has made it possible for so many people of color to be the ones dying of COVID, the brokenness that has, um, that has taken the lives of too many black, brown, and native peoples, um, often at the hands of the police who are supposed to protect us. So how will we right those wrongs? We engage the work of justice. And finally, we engage in healing. If you want to become beloved community now, then we tell the truth, we take up the work of justice, and we become healers. A way of doing that is quite simply anti-racism training, training and dismantling racism. Please raise your hand if you've ever done a training in anti-racism. 
Um, raise your hand if you've done a training in the last three years. Raise your hand if you are someone who's actually been trained to help to train other people in dismantling racism. Ah, so these are some of the things that I think every diocese needs to be working on building capacity around. Every congregation needs to be building capacity around. Um, the Diocese of Southern Ohio, I'm so impressed with. They have actually made such a commitment to becoming beloved community that they've identified what they call ambassadors in every congregation. Every church has one, at least one person who is, um, who's receiving training in anti-racism, who's helping the congregation to identify in ways that it can practice becoming beloved community. And then they have a diocesan coordinator who brings those ambassadors together. Um, I hope that you might consider doing something like that as a diocese and maybe Daughters of the King chapters, because I imagine you have daughters in most every congregation. Maybe you all could be the ones who help to make that happen. Maybe you could be those ambassadors of healing, prayer, and reconciliation. Um, so you can do the training. Um, you can also be storytellers. You could start sacred ground circles. Anybody know about sacred ground? near diocese, I hope some folks do. Sacred Ground is a, um, is a curriculum that we've created. There are 10 sessions and you're able to, um, in each of these sessions, learn the stories about America and race, America's racial history. But more than that, we tell stories to each other. And you do that in particular, white people talking to other white people, sometimes multiracial, but usually whites with other white folk, because we find that that's an area where there's really some need. So a part of the healing is learning to be these healers, learning to teach about anti-racism, learning to dismantle racism, learning how to form sacred ground. Um, and there are a lot of tools for doing that. If you're serious about healing, and I hope you are, then you can actually start to practice with those tools yourselves. So I'll stop there and pray that, um, that you will find the ways that God is holding out for you find the ways of not only, um, not only longing for new ways of being together around race, but find ways of being a practitioner who, um, who truly heals, a truth teller and a maker of justice for the love of God. Thanks friends. I first want to take this opportunity to say a word of thanks and uh, deep gratitude to uh, Bishop Gale and to Canon Stephanie for your presence and uh, take, taking the time to gather with us. I want to thank my sisters uh, in the Diocese of Northern Indiana. I'm also aware that we have a few sisters from the Diocese of Indianapolis who've joined us, and so I want to welcome them as well to this, uh, to this assembly. Uh, I, uh, Bumi, thank, thank you for reading from my, uh, my, my sort of uh, faith story, personal story. Um, I want to highlight the fact that uh, there are two things that I, I uh, am known for. One is a, a storyteller and the other is risk taking. Um, I think it's also important to begin by saying um, it, it takes a bit of time and, and wisdom to move away from believing that nothing of any value uh, was done before uh, you arrived on the scene. Uh, and and I, th I, think, I think it's important to say by way of storytelling that, that the Diocese of Northern Indiana um, from Kokomo, uh, where uh, historically one of the largest KKK uh, uh, chapters in, in the nation's history was founded to um, the, the tensions uh, that existed that uh, in Gary, Indiana, that moved uh, our 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 African American black folk from from Christ Church to establishing a mission of uh, uh, now known as Saint Augustine's, and and all of the other uh, things that preceded us as Episcopalians in the Diocese of Northern Indiana um, that are are part of our history. They're, they're part of the wounds that we carry, um, which include um, bishops making decisions without uh, consulting people uh, 
by, by way of all of those kinds of experiences, not to mention the, the experiences of what we as persons from other places on the planet did to our indigenous brothers and sisters who, who were here long before any of us arrived. So, so that's all a part of our story. So, so what I, what I want to say first and foremost is, is uh, I know that, that my colleagues in, in Episcopal ministry faced particular challenges from the 1950s through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and all of them have tried uh, in the ways that were available to them, uh, but it's, it's ongoing work. And so I'm only gonna talk about uh, the, the time that God has given me the responsibility as a steward to, to, to sort of say what I've done. And I wanna begin with a, a personal story. Um, as, as you know, I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and it wasn't until 1973 that my mom purchased a home in Ferguson where we still, my, my sister and brother-in-law and nephew still live. But uh, we, we grew up in the inner city of St. Louis, right near uh, the housing project, which was called Pruitt-Igo. It was one of the, 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 the 1950s uh, uh, project area, primarily for, for black people to live in. And the dividing line between Pruitt-Igo uh, was, was Cass Avenue. And we happened to live three blocks north of Cass Avenue in uh, the white poor part of the north side of, of St. Louis. And went to a, a Roman Catholic uh, uh, parochial school and, and, and parish. And one Sunday, uh, it, was, it happened to be what they called Vocation Sunday. And it was when the, the pastor was encouraged to uh, uh, speak about the, nece the, the necessary uh, in invitations of, of inviting young men, pardon the lack of inclusion, inviting young men to consider uh, the priesthood. And this, uh, this, this was a, a poor, white, predominantly German parish. And I was, I was an acolyte that Sunday, and I was seated behind the pastor who was in the pulpit, and uh, he said this. He said, uh, if you parents don't start encouraging your sons to consider the priesthood, one day you will have, and he used the N-word for a pastor. Uh, and do you know what? No, no one in the congregation got up and walked out. No one in the assembly said anything. No one challenged it. It was, it was normal. It was, you know, so, so here, here we were predominantly people, white, poor people. And the, the attitude was, well, at least we're not as bad as they are, right? That, that, that's, that's the story that, that, we were formed in. It's the story I was formed in. And, and, and so I, I begin understanding the fact that by virtue of the color of my skin and my gender, I have privilege and that's just part of the truth of my life. And, and did, did we grow up poor? Did I have ketchup bread some nights for dinner? Absolutely. All that's true but still I benefit because of my gender and the color of my sin, which is, which is the truth about most of us uh, who live in the Diocese of Indiana, in Northern Indiana, who are members of the Episcopal Church. So that's just a part of the story. Um, I, wanna, I wanna now bring us to uh, the, the, the more recent time in our diocese. Uh, Right after I was elected and got and was ordained and consecrated, everybody was saying, you know, are you going to cast a vision for the Diocese of Northern Indiana? Everybody was asking, what's your vision? What's your vision? What's your vision? And so uh, some of you may recall that, that at our first convention, I, I, I said, we're going we're to focus on the five marks of mission to, uh, to tell, to teach, to tend, to transform, and to treasure. And, and you know, we, 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 we made, a, made banners, and, and, and that, that was a, a large part of the first year or so of my life in ministry here. And then in November of 2017, uh, uh, I went to the, the Bishop's Conference for, uh, that's put on by the Church Pension Group in New York City. And 
uh, we, f we flew out, I flew out, and um, uh, just so happened that there was a, a reception at the presiding bishop's uh, apartment, and uh, we were all standing around, and guess who walked into the room that I met for the first time face-to-face? Canon Stephanie Spellers. And we, we, we were catching up with one another. Both of us are extroverts, and so, so we were engaged in conversation. And, and she started talking to me about the curriculum that was being developed. And she said, she said everyone's going to get one of these calendars that were mailed out. We're sorry if they've not gotten there. But this, this was the Episcopal Church's uh, attempt in, in 2017 to uh, invite us during the season of Advent uh, to tell the truth about our churches and race, to proclaim the dream of beloved community, to practicing the way of love and the pattern of Jesus, and to repairing the breach in institutions and society. And she told me uh, the, 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 the uh, calendars have been sent out, they should be arriving sometime soon. And so I got home and I called Father David Heinemann at St. Augustine's. I called uh, Father Jim Warnock at, at Gethsemane Marion. I called Mother uh, Terry Bays at Holy Trinity in South Bend and Father T.J. Freeman at, at Trinity in Fort Wayne. And I said, could we, could we gather Episcopalians to, to begin talking about become, what it means to begin to become beloved community? And, and so uh, the first Sunday in, in uh, the, the first Thursday in Advent, we met at St. Augustine's. The second, we met at Gethsemane Marion. The third, we met at um, Holy Trinity here in South Bend. And the fourth, we met at Trinity Fort Wayne. And, and that was the beginning of, of our conversations, which then led to establishing a commission uh, around becoming beloved community. And they've been working at doing training for persons to begin to have conversations specifically with persons who live in rural communities in our diocese, uh, which are predominantly white. And, and then uh, they, they did a training to identify facilitators in our diocese uh, who are willing to, to sort of begin the work of having white people to engage in conversations with one another. And, and then, um, the commission just completed uh, working through the sacred ground curriculum. Uh, they've completed that 10 week process so that they can be prepared to help facilitate that conversation in our diocese. And as some of you know, I know Father Tom knows, um, uh, uh, I, I invited uh, two, two faculty persons at the University of Notre Dame who are skilled in conversations around race and difference of uh, Pamela Nolan Young and Carla Bellinger to facilitate um, three, three days uh, with our, our non-Black clergy to begin to have vulnerable conversations about what it means to address and confront the sin of racism, white privilege, and white supremacy in our diocese. And, and, and so those are the kinds of things that, that are are part of what makes up our life right now in our diocese. And you know, the, one of the things I, I think is true that I'd like to just end with uh, as a question, you know, every single one of us has a race story. Every single one of us ha have stories about um, w whether, whether we walked away from con confronting situations around race and disparity, or whether we uh, challenged a particular perspective, every single one of us, I think, have opportunities to think about the stories that form and frame us. And I, I'm just, I, I'm grateful that the Daughters of the King at this assembly have decided to, to sort of focus on the question, Lord, what would you have me do in confronting race and racism and supremacy? Uh, and uh, it's, it's a question I pray about every day. And it's also a question that I, I sometimes fail at too. And I, I have to admit my own sin and failure in that regard. So I, I, I will end here and say a word of thanks to all of you for your listening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um...
to all of our panelists. Thank you. This has been, of course, we knew this was going to be eye-opening and it was going to be interesting, uh, very um, insightful and gives all of us more to think about. So let's go on to the rest of our closing prayers with Father Tom. Okay, I'm unmuted again. And thank you, Shula, for sharing the, the screen. Let us pray from Psalm 10. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. God, that ignites fire in my bones. Ignite a fire in me for racial equality. Give me Jesus' eyes to see the inequality taking place around me. Help me to acknowledge racial biases in myself, my family, my culture, and my church. God, illuminate what I have ignored, denied, or haven't seen. Give me Jesus' hands to compassionately come alongside those who are suffering from the generational wounds of racism. Make me gentle in touch and firm when I close my fist in solidarity. God, heal the wounds of racism. Give me Jesus' feet to do my part in taking action. Rouse me from complacent sleep and lead me where I can most effectively work towards racial justice. God, move me to take concrete action. Give me Jesus' mind to come up with solutions in policy, education, and across all sectors. Replace my weak, self-serving thoughts with strong, enlightened ideas. God, enlighten my mind to bring cha change quickly. Give me Jesus' heart to engender empathy for all people who are Black. Let my heart break as I feel even a fraction of the pain black people are carrying from racist ideology. God, break my heart so my grief can transform me. Give me Jesus' union with you and all you created. Let me recognize your image in every black person. Let every black person's struggle be my struggle. Let their skin be my skin, their divinity my divinity. May I never again believe the color of our skin separated us from divine union. Give me Jesus' mouth so I can speak and deliver timely messages. Let me not hold back the truth of your love, even when it is uncomfortable or risky. May I never again be silent about racism. Give me Jesus' anger that overturned tables so that I can overturn racist oppressive systems. May I never again be complicit in racism. Give me Jesus' hospitality that welcomed everyone to the table so I can care for and befriend people with different skin color than me. May I never again exclude, ignore, or assert power over people of color. Give me Jesus' obedience that led him to the cross so that I can die to my privilege and join your collective body. May I never again choose my privilege over, being, over the be, well-being and equality of an, any person of color. Give me Jesus' resurrection that brought life from the grave so I can be a bearer of hope that we have the power to finally and completely end racism. May I never again believe I do not have an essential role to play or am powerless in ending racism. God of fire in my bones. Ignite a fire in me for racial equality. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Amen. And now, daughters of the King, may God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that we may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world, so that we can do what others claim cannot be done.
May the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen. 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 Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for this wonderful event today.